you experience the presence of God? I think a lot of people know a lot about Scripture, but sometimes they're so knowledgeable they fail to experience His presence. And, and uh, you know, as we sing that song, it isn't that, that we need to be somewhere out here in, in la-la land, but there is a point where God's near. We're talking about God today. God is a personal God. And we need to understand uh, that he cares about us, and we're important to him. And so we're going to be looking at some of the attributes. But before I get into that, you know, I, I was online, and I saw two articles that jumped out at me, and they kind of relate to where we are today. The first one, uh, the Green, Green Bay Packers quarterback, Aaron Rodgers, is making headlines, raising eyebrows over his latest comments surrounding religion. Rogers opened up about his Christian background and leaving the faith uh, on Danica Patrick's podcast. That's his girlfriend, fiance, significant other, whatever uh, you want to call that relationship. Uh, and he explained how he, he grew up in the church. He received Christ, he said, when he was about five and really had this close relationship. His family, very spiritual and... Uh, when he hit high school, he was involved in Young Life. He really liked Young Life. The Young Life director really impressed him because he would swear and uh, do some of those things. And they got together, and they just had fun. And Young Life was fun. And when he went to college, he went to Cal. He was quarterback over here at Cal. He tried a couple of the uh, Bible studies that they had for, for students there and came away and said they weren't fun. And church wasn't fun, and said he, in fact, he said, when I was a boy, people would get up on Sunday morning, and they would get dressed, they'd go to church, they'd go home, because it was expected. There was not a presence in terms of what he was saying. And I'm not sure when God was ever real to him. I tried to find out what kind of church he came from, and none of those who were reporting on this could determine what the church was he grew up in. Uh, one said it was a large, fundamental Christian church, non-denominational. And uh, it really didn't say where he came from or what it was, but he had rejected it. Uh, one thing that made me tend to think he had studied with some different groups, number one is that he said he can't understand how there could be hell and how God could send the majority of his creation to hell and only 144,000 would go to heaven. And immediately my light was going on and off, and I was going, okay, maybe his parents were so involved in evangelical Christianity, or maybe there was somewhere along the line some teaching from the Jehovah Witnesses, uh, because that would tend to say that's where they would be. You probably learned that, or are learning that, if you're in Corwin's study on the cults, because I'm sure they probably mentioned that. Uh, and of course, the the Jehovah's Witnesses even reached a point where there were more than 144,000, so some are going to be up there and others down here. Now, if you're wondering about that 144,000, is that what's going to heaven? Uh, in the book of Revelation, it talks about 144,000 witnesses on the earth, and they kind of grab a hold of that, and it says there's 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, and they are witnesses here on the earth during that time. And so I... I Looked at him, but it, it sounds from what we read like he really did not have his biblical basics down very well. He wasn't really established 
in his faith to where he could withstand the temptations and the desires to walk away and not be there. And so it uh, said it's driven a wall between him and his family. They aren't talking. There's not a relationship, and they're very disappointed in some of the things he says. Now, there was another individual, and since we're talking about football, uh, this is... uh, Clark Hunt, he's the CEO and part owner with his family of the Kansas City Chiefs. And Clark Hunt, uh, his, his dad or his grandfather was a, an oil tycoon. That's where the money came from at one time, probably about the richest man in America. And then his father uh, helped to found the uh, American Football League and started the Kansas City Chiefs. And it's just passed down through the family. Now Clark Hunt is there. And at the end of the game where they won the last game, uh, he said, I want to thank the Lord for blessing us with the opportunity, said CEO Clark Hunt on national TV. The glory belongs to him. He and his wife, dedicated, committed Christians, uh, Sunday mornings they thought, wow, we could do something for God here. And he started a church service that goes before the Kansas City Chief Games. Uh, I think on this last one, they had 350 people there for worship service, and eight of them received the Lord. And he said, it's an evangelistic opportunity. So here's two men. One raised in the church and fell away. One raised in the church and remained faithful and continues to walk with God today. We look at the difference there, and I think oftentimes it's because one really has that relationship, and the other one maybe never quite so strong. I think it's very easy to grow up in a church. Uh, in fact, I read an article the other day, or heard it, uh, read it on the news or something, where young people, when they leave high school and they go away to college, about 69% quit going to church. Maybe just for a period of time or for the rest of their lives. And you think, wow, 68, 69, they go away to college and they're led away. That's terrible. And then it says the ones that stay home. And uh, maybe with their parents, maybe working about 70% drop away, at least for a time. And I thought, boy, we've got to get back to understanding what the basics of our faith is. And, and, and we have to have a, a really rich relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and that needs to come through for our youth, but it needs to come through for our adults because our youth watch us. And they watch where we are in terms of our faith and what's important and what isn't important in our relationship with God. So I was going to speak about the problem that we have in the world, and we're going to get to that next week. But as I was thinking back where we've gone, we talked that first Sunday on the basic Bible basics, and we talked about the idea that there is a God. We just looked at creation and Wow, there's got to be one first cause. Somebody started it all. And then when you look at the world, and it is so complex, and, and the human being, you realize there had to be a designer to make that happen. But it doesn't mean we really know God. Theists, for instance, say that God came, started it all, got out of the way, and just kind of let us go. It's kind of like God sitting up there in heaven laughing and chuckling as he watches us kind of mess around trying to make it here on the earth. There are others that, that would believe that God is in everything. Everything is God. We talked about that and, and the misunderstanding. Or everything, God is his great circle and everything that is created is inside of that. Well, God takes part in his creation. 
He's here, but he is not the creation. He is beyond that. But as we get into it today, I want us to understand some of the attributes, just going back over them. For many, it will be uh, definitely a rerun on things that you know. For others, it may be some new things. I hope it's beneficial. I would trust it will be. But I think it's good periodically to not think of some of the doctrinal issues all the time, but go back and say, okay, who is this God? Uh, is he really personal? Is he really related to me? Does he care about me? Does he care about the act that I had a bad week? And I was frustrated. Does he understand that? Now, let me tell you something. I didn't have a bad week, and it was a good week. So I don't want you to get that idea. But I, it's the idea of where are we in our relationship with God. And so I just want us to go back and know that if we're going to be Christians, we have to be able to trust God. Is he trustworthy? Can we put our faith in him? And we should know that. We should know whether God is trustworthy or whether he isn't trustworthy. Um, I think to trust somebody, you have to know them, don't you? If you don't know them very well, then you probably aren't going to trust them very much. You aren't going to have that feeling of trust. It's, uh, trust is what makes for a strong marriage. You know, you get married and, and you've got that person and they are special to you and you say all the vows and, man, we're going to make it all together for the rest of our lives and you walk in, but, but you like to know that you can trust them. The longer that marriage goes on, probably the more you'll grow to trust that individual if they are faithful. But you know what happens when your spouse is unfaithful? The trust is broken. The trust is broken. And the one who is the offender may come and apologize and say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I should have been faithful. And the forgiveness is given, but let me tell you something. Oftentimes, this trust is not yet reestablished. And I've talked to people that have gone through this, and, and, and the person who offended in the first place will come back and say, well, he or she doesn't trust me. I don't understand why they don't trust me. It's been three months. I'll tell you what, folks, it takes a lot longer than that to rebuild trust. Once you break it, it takes time. The thing is with God, God's trustworthy. And as we look at the attributes of God, he has never been unfaithful. He has never failed us. You go back and we talked about the Bible, some of the proofs of Scripture when we were talking about it. And one of the major proofs is the idea of has God fulfilled his promises? And the answer is absolutely yes. God fulfills the promises. He keeps his promises. Prophecies that were made hundreds of years in the past are fulfilled in Scripture. And prophecies that have been made that have not been fulfilled yet will be. Because you see, God's trustworthy. And we can put our trust in him. And as we get to know him better, that is, that's the key. So we want to look at that this morning. The next thing I want you to realize is that God's personal. We trust God. We, we have to know that he's personal. He's just that God, not that God, as I mentioned before, who's sitting up somewhere in the universe looking down and saying, boy, they're sure messing up down there today. Or, wow, they got it right. You practice the presence of God. Is he present in your life? 
Is it a personal relationship that you have with your heavenly father? You know, I, I think it's so important that we understand that God is more than uh, a mystical force. The Holy Spirit, we talked about that a little bit yesterday, is more than a mystical force. In, in Star, Star Wars, it says, any Star Trekkies here or Star Wars people? Okay, we got a few of you. They're all together. This is amazing. Uh, and You know, it's, it, it's more with God than just, uh, he's going to say, and, and maybe the force be with you, Luke Skywalker. Uh, He's more than that. He cares about his creation. He's not a far-off type of God who doesn't care. There was a song years ago that we used to sing. When by faith I met him face to face, and I saw the wonder of his grace, and I knew that he was more than just a God who didn't care, who lived away up there, because that's not who God is. The song goes on, and... And, you know, it's, it, it's a song somebody wrote, but uh, it says, Now he walks beside me day by day. He watches over me lest I stray, helping me to find that narrow way. He's everything to me. And so he's a, a personal, caring God. I, I, I'm going to be looking through scriptures. I encourage you to write them down. Take them home. You may not have time to turn to all of them. The first one I'm going to look at is in Matthew chapter 10, when we begin to talk about a God who's a a personal caring God. And in Matthew 10, verse 29 and 30, let me read it to you. It says, and Jesus, Jesus is speaking here. He says, and are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not a one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You're more valuable than many sparrows. And, you know, it just, it just talks about his concern for everything that happens on the earth. He knows everything that happens. He knows everything that goes on in your life. If he's bothered to count the hairs on your head, then he knows what's going to take place tomorrow as well as today. And you're more valuable than a sparrow, and you just need to realize how valuable you are to God. I think each and every one of us need to realize that. We have faltered and we failed in so many ways because of our sin nature. And yet God still loves you, and he still loves me, and we're important to him. And, and when you begin to think about God, you realize that not only are we important, does he know everything, but God's, God's powerful. Uh, the word we use is omnipotent, but in, in the book of Jeremiah, in the 32nd chapter, uh, we begin to see some of these things about who God is, and in Jeremiah chapter 32, 27, one page back. It says, Behold, I am the Lord. This is God speaking. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. And then he makes a statement. Is anything too difficult for me? Is anything too difficult for God? We, we worry about things that go on in our world we wonder how things are going to work out. Can, can God really take care of it? In fact, I think too often we fail to even bring God into the matter. We get stressed out over job. We get stressed out over money. We get stressed out over politics. We get stressed out over our relationships and how are the kids going to do and are, are they going to make it growing up? And Man, we need to know we've got a powerful God that takes care of that. I think when he came to Mary, I, I think back to Luke chapter 1, when the angel came to Mary and he said, Mary, 
guess what? You're favored. God, you're the favored one. And, and she was probably one, man, what is this all about? Number one, I've never seen an angel. And he tells me I'm the favored one of God. And then he said, you're going to bear the Messiah in essence. She said, how's that going to be? You're going to have a baby. How's that going to be? I, I've never had a relationship with a man. And the angel said, oh, but the power of the Spirit will come upon you. And it's going to be the Son of God. How's it going to be? And the angel said, nothing's too difficult for God. Nothing. And we get caught up with that sometimes because we want to put flesh and bones on God and, and we want to make him kind of like us instead of who he really is. And we need to understand that we can't put stipulations, we can't put boundaries on God and make him into something less than what he is. In Matthew chapter 19, beginning in the 21st verse and going through the 26th verse, a man by the name, well, it doesn't say his name, he was a rich young individual, and he came to Jesus and he wanted to know how he might have eternal life. Beginning in verse 20, it says, He said to him, All these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? You see, Jesus had said, If you want to have eternal life, you've got to keep the commandments. You keep all the commandments. You come back after you've kept the commandments, and you know we'll know. And, and uh, he said, How can this be? And Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete... Go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. You know, one of the commandments is that you shall have no other gods before me. And it doesn't necessarily have to little be a little elder, uh, idol on a shelf. It can be all kinds of different things that we put before God. And it says, when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. It would be one thing if Lord just asked him to do something easy, but to give up his money? Man, that, that was what determined who he was. Verse 23, Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and that eye of a needle has been uh, translated a couple different ways. Some people think it's uh, eye of a needle. And others, there is a, a small gate going into Jerusalem they used to call the eye of the needle. And uh, camels couldn't go through it. And so... You can take it either way, but it's, it's the idea that it was an impossibility for people to do that, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. How ridiculous. The disciples heard this, and they were very astonished, and they said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We need to understand salvation is not of us, it's of God. And we in ourselves cannot save ourselves, only God can do that. But he is all-powerful, and that makes it possible for him to do that. Another thing that God is, is he's trustworthy. I can put my trust in him and know that he will fulfill everything that he says, everything that he has told me he would do. In 1 Kings chapter 8, Verse 56, 1 Kings 
8.56, it says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not word, one word has failed of all the good promise which he had promised through Moses, his servant. And so when God said he was going to do something, they knew that he was going to do it because they had seen him fulfill the promises he had. He's trustworthy. In Hebrews chapter 10, there's another passage that, that deals with this as we look at the, uh, who God is and his trustworthiness. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. It says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. In other words, don't, don't be like where Aaron Rodgers is today. Don't waver in your faith, for he who promised is faithful. He can be trusted. Who do you know that can be trusted in all things? God. When I was a boy, I used to think my parents were trustworthy, and they were to a certain extent, but there were times that they failed me. There are times that I know that I failed my wife in terms of promises, or my daughter, my granddaughter. God never fails us. Totally trustworthy. And when you grab that, you understand how important that is. The fourth, the fifth thing we look at today is that God's holy. That holiness simply means he is separated. He transcends his creation, but he's involved with it. He's, boy, he's sinless. He's pure, uh, righteous. He's just. He's, he's an awesome God. And the holiness of God really sets him apart from his creation. When you think about, about someone being holy. Uh, there's a, a beautiful picture, passage concerning his holiness found in Isaiah chapter 6. Um, it's, it's a well-known passage. It talks about the call of Isaiah. God called him into service. And in Isaiah chapter 6, these first few verses uh, even even the angels in heaven uh, worship him for his holiness. We should worship him for his holiness. He's, he's not to be taken lightly. But in Isaiah chapter 6, when it talks about it, in the, the year that King Uzziah's death, now Uzziah was a king in Israel and, and, or, or Judah, and he was basically a good king. But uh, it, it isn't really an issue here. It's just telling us when it happened. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He was lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple and seraphim. These are, these are rather exalted angels. This is an angel group, these seraphim. Seraphim stood up above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. Angels didn't even look on God. They were there in the throne room. They were calling out, holy, holy, but they didn't even look on God. With two of their wings, they covered their face. With two, they covered his feet. He uh, didn't light down onto the floor of the throne room of God. He remained up, and with two, he flew because God was so holy. He was so separate from the creation. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then Isaiah said, Whoa, is me. Because he began to recognize 
in the presence of God, his failure as an individual. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. It's not only that I have problems, but all of Israel has problems. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to him with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched his mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven he says, then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah made this amazing statement, here am I, send me. And he told him to go and tell his people his message. But what I want you to understand is God is so amazing, he set apart from us. And when we see him, we should be amazed in his presence because he is holy he is without sin. He is pure. We don't take God lightly for his holiness. There's nothing on earth like God. The next thing we see about God is he is everywhere present. Back in the, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 23 and 24, uh, we talk about the the omnipresence of God. In verse 23, or chapter 23, uh, verses 23 and 24. What do you think about when you're out with friends in terms of God? Is he present? Is he there? Is he with you wherever you are? Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24, it says, uh, I Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in a hiding place so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? There's no place that you can go to hide from God. There's no place that you can go when God's not with you. And boy, I'll tell you, that can be both a comfort and it can be uncomfortable. Because I remember as a, a young adult, there were some plans I would play, go places. My wife had a uh, challenger, right? It was purple. It was called Plum Purple. And I would often drive my, my wife's Challenger. Uh, late at night, sometimes in those years, uh, I'd be out with the guys, and there were places I just as soon nobody else that went to my church saw me. And yet I was in that Challenger, and I wasn't hidden. Well, the thing is, it doesn't matter where we go, God's with us. And even when I went to whatever places I went to, God was there with me. And I look back on that and I think, wow, God, you know, there's places that I've taken you literally and there's places I've taken you in my mind and I apologize. I'm so sorry because you were there with me. 
On the other hand, there are places when I'm a little bit fearful, a little bit anxious, and things aren't going quite the way I think they should, and yet I stop and realize that God is there with me. And he never leaves me. And it's a comfort to know that. In Psalms 139, uh, verses 7 and 8, it's, it's, it's a great, great psalm. I, I love this psalm. But Psalms 139, 7 and 8, it says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of death, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. We studied the book of Jonah just recently, and we talked about how Jonah was there in the belly of that fish. The fish had swallowed him, and he was there three days, and, and he called out to God. And even there in the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, in that sea monster, whatever it was, a fish, a whale, uh, the Bible is not totally clear, but it was one that God had prepared for Jonah. And God was there. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're experiencing, you need to understand the presence of God. We sang about it just a few moments ago, practicing his presence. It isn't that we just practice it. It's just that we need to be aware of it. Because he's there with you. Whatever you're going through, whatever's taking place, God is there and he cares about you. And you know what? He knows everything that's going on in your life. He knows it before it happens, he can look back and see the things that have happened in the, play, in the past. And he knows the things that are going to happen in the future. And he knows what you're going through right now. And we get so anxious about things so often, and we forget the presence of God that he's there. And he also knows what we're going through. In 1 John chapter 3, 18 to 21, I want to especially look at the 20th verse here. But it says, little children, let us not love with word or tongue, with tongue, but indeed in truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And here it is, in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart. God knows more than my conscience does. He knows all things. You can't hide from him. And it's an amazing statement that he knows everything that's going on in our lives. Everything that's taken place. Everything that's going on right now. You know, there, there are things that we want to hide from other people. We don't want them to know it. But God knows it. Psalms 139, the first four verses, talks about this great knowledge. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. David ends his great psalm with real amazing statement. Search me, O God, and know my heart. He already has searched. He already knows me. And then David said, try me and know my anxious ways, my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Well, it starts out, O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path. 
You evaluate where I'm going, my lying down, and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a single word on my tongue. Lord, I wish somehow you would hold them back periodically. Even before there's a single word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You know it all. God sees it all. Nothing we do is done in secret. And God knows what we're thinking. He knows what's going on in our hearts. He knows our actions. He knows our attitudes. And when we think of the Bible basics, one of the very things we need to do is get a handle on who God is and, and how he impacts our life and what he does for us. God's just. He's just. He, he doesn't judge unfairly, but he judges fairly. In Isaiah 38, in the 18th verse, 38, 18, says, Sheol can't thank you. Death can't thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. That's because of the way they have lived and the, the way they have turned away from God. But in Second Peter, it, it makes a, an amazing statement. Those without God will die without him. But in Second Peter, I'll get there, chapter 3, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9, it talks about his desired will. Um, not what is determined, but what he desires. And it says in the ninth verse of Second Peter 3, it says, No one who is born of God practices sin because he is born of God. I don't think that's the passage I wanted. But it was the idea that God really doesn't want anyone to perish. That's not his desire. But it happens because we turn our backs on him, because we fail to follow him and, and respond to him. Oh, well, no wonder it's the wrong one. Just a minute, I was in John. Forgive me. It would help if I had looked at the, the passage a little more. First, uh, First Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's God's ultimate desire, that we would know him. In Matthew chapter 7, it speaks of the way of eternal life. How do we get there? And in Matthew chapter 7, it's, it's when Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount. And in verses 13 and 14, he makes a statement. He says, enter through the narrow gate. There's only one way to God. You know that? Jesus made a statement. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. Nobody comes to God any other way. You can try to be good. You can go to church. You can be faithful. Uh, we talked about it yesterday. You can be raised in a really great family. But if you don't choose the right way, you don't get there. Matthew 7, 13 and 14, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. It's the easy way. It's the way of the world. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are 
few that find it. Why don't people find the narrow way? I think one reason is because we're so caught up with the present that we fail to think about eternity. We're caught up in today's world, the, the, the material world that we live in, and, and so we follow that world. It may have to do with finances. It may have to do with power. It may have to do with prestige. It may have to do with all kinds of things. And we fail to realize that the Bible says our time on earth is like a vapor. There's a mist and it's gone. In terms of eternity, it's short. How long is eternity? We can't describe it. I, I remember when I was in high school, I had a, a teacher that told us about eternity. He said there's an old Chinese proverb that doesn't really describe eternity, but it was a, a, a proverb that there was a mile cube of granite, huge block of granite. And every year, one day in the year, a little swallow would come down and dip one feather and hit the granite and fly off. And he said the Chinese proverb was that when that granite was totally worn down and God, gone from the friction of that feather one day a year, there would be another day to follow. It's just the idea that we can't even begin to imagine what it is. But when you think of what you're preparing for today, you may be preparing for retirement. Yeah, I've got to save so much. I've got to get so much taken and, and put away because retirement's coming sometime. But what we have to understand is that life that leads up to retirement and beyond is just a fleeting moment in the scheme of eternity. Are you ready for eternity with this God who knows everything about you? Are you ready for eternity with this, with this God who is trustworthy, who keeps his promises, who says he loves you beyond anything that you could imagine? And when we get into the issue next week and we talk about the problem we have, we need to understand that Sin keeps us from God, and sin causes all kinds of things that keeps us from being where we should be. I, uh, I just, this last character quality, I just want to read you a number of verses. It has to do with the love of God. You know, the love of God desires that which is the very best for you. And I just put these verses down. They're all from the Old Testament. It's interesting. A lot of times we don't think of the love of God coming from the Old Testament but it says the love of God, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Exodus 34, 6. Numbers 14, 18 says the Lord is slow to anger and he's abundant in loving kindness. He forgives iniquity. He forgives transgressions. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant, who keeps his promises. He'll do what he said, and his loving kindness is to a thousandth generation. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. First Chronicles 16, 34. I've trusted in your loving kindness. Psalms 13, 5. If you have not trusted in God's loving kindness, you probably have not trusted in God. 
you fail to understand who he is, this great God. We've just looked at some of the, the uh, character qualities of God today, but one of the greatest is that he loves us. He is holy, he is just, and yet he still loves his creation. Blessed be the Lord, for he has made marvelous his loving kindness to me. Psalms 31, 21. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. Yeah, he wants us to be righteous. He wants to be just. But the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Your loving kindness. That was Psalms 33, 5. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Psalms 36, 5. He is precious in his... How precious is your loving kindness, O Lord. Psalms 36, 7. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens. Last one, Psalms 103.8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness. Next week, we're going to talk about this problem. It's sin, and it separates us from God. Two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that the creation demonstrates that God exists. There's no question about the fact of the existence of God. It may not be the God, as we look at creation, it may not have been the God that we see in the Bible, but people believe in a God. 89% of Americans say there's a God. Last week, we talked about the Bible. We talked about the fact that, is it trustworthy? Can I put my faith in it? Can I believe what it says? We came to the conclusion it's trustworthy. Uh, you look at so many different things. We, we look at the fact that the Bible itself says it's all inspired, all scriptures inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching and reproof, for correction, training in righteousness, teaches me how to live. Bible's trustworthy. Just... Just the way it came into being, the transmission of Scripture. God, it says, inspired men who sat down and wrote the words without error. And then it was transmitted through the generations to us. And with all of the information we have, all of the data that is out there, we can put faith in this Bible. We can put faith in it just looking back at the experience of the uh, the prophecies that have been fulfilled, so many of them. Probability says, well, this isn't even a probability, it's an assurity. Really, the probability is so great that the Bible is real and true. And so then we go back like we did today. We said, who is this God? Who's this God, this personal God that cares about us? Who is this God who is fully trustworthy. What he says he will do, he will complete it. He's always done that. He's a God who loves us with an, an endearing love, a love that, that never ends. It says it's eternal. He's a God who provided salvation for us through Jesus Christ because he loves us that much. He is a God who is all-powerful. He knows uh, all things. He knows what I think. He knows where I've been. He knows what I've gone through. And do you know what? He still accepts me. That's amazing. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He is wherever I go. And he's provided a way for me to have a relationship with him. And so next week, we're going to go back and we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3.
and a few other passages along the way, and we're going to talk about the problem of man and the problem of the world. Because we need to understand that God just doesn't give us a blanket statement of forgiveness. We're all sinners. We're born into sin. And we need to have a, a narrow way that we come to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. So next week, we're going to talk about that. We're just kind of talking and working through these basics. But I want you to see as we go through each week what's essential for us to have that relationship with God. And what God wants to do for us as we go through that. So um, I hope you're taking in the things that we're saying. And, and it's making a difference for you. And when we've completed this, you know, I think of Aaron Rodgers. And my heart goes out to him. Because somehow along the line he was supposedly heard the truth. But he didn't have it embedded in his life sufficiently that it made the difference for eternity. Uh, his girlfriend, race car driver, amazing. Amazing first woman that, that was uh, doing so many amazing things, Danica Patrick. And they, they asked her about her faith. And she said, oh, I don't know for sure what I believe today. She said, I, I think my parents were Lutherans. I'm not sure. We were so busy at the track every Sunday that we never had time to really find out much about what we believed. And so I, I think there's a God. But I'm not sure who he is or what he's like or where he is or how that relates to me. And I would hope when we finish here, you will have a solid handle on those things and not have to question Many of you already do. I'm so thankful. But we find that sometimes they don't because we see people just kind of like these two falling away from what they learned. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come to you, and, and um, boy, it's amazing to think of who you are. Every time I go back through, and I've done this several times, I go back through the attributes of God, looking at them from different directions and different ways, and And then just stop to meditate on who God is. Just to, to pull up the scriptures and, and read about who you are, Father. I want to talk about you in the third person. I want to talk to you. And, and Father, I want to have that relationship with you that is real and solid because of who you are and my commitment to you my desire to know you. I would pray for each person here that they might have that same desire to know you fully and completely as much as we can from what you've given us in your word, from the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. Might we just grab a hold of these things and experience the presence of God. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Thank you for your word that tells us about who you are. Help us not to become complacent about knowing about you, Father. Thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.